0: I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a little role reversal going on today. Pastor Bob has no tie on, and look who's wearing a tie over there. Doesn't he look sharp, Pastor Paul? <clears throat> I just uh, posted that on Facebook, and somebody texted me, are you here? Uh, and he must be at home. He's going like, are you posting to Facebook during the church service? Sorry. Another piece of role reversal for those of you that are accustomed to 830 service is that Paul and I are swapping and I get to go first and uh, get you started and then Pastor Paul is going to come and wrap up the message here in a moment. So I'm kind of wondering what you're going to remember from 2019. So um, maybe this has been the best year ever for you. Maybe it's been the worst year ever for you. I know at least one of our families that would say it was both the best year and the worst year all at the same time in 2019. So as a church body what we will remember from 2019? Well for me certainly it's uh, our 150th anniversary. Big celebration back in May and I just thought we'd take a couple moments because uh, especially at 11 o'clock maybe not quite as much at 830 we'll have a lot of folks maybe you're sitting near that uh, you don't usually see at church. And so I want you to do two things, but let me finish the instruction before you do it, okay? I want you to turn to your neighbor and introduce yourself. You can take a minute. We're going to, this is not like a 10-second, you know, I'm Bob. Uh, this is to, you know, to meet somebody close to you that maybe you don't know very well. And then I want you to uh, to give give that person a highlight from the anniversary celebration. So look, think back to what was your favorite moment. To prompt your memory a little bit, I'll, I'll remind you of some of the things that happened just real quickly. I'm going to go real fast. Maybe something in here will go, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. So we had movie night on the lawn. We had our anniversary shirts, which is actually why I wore my shirt today, to remind you it was our anniversary year. We had a tent revival. Uh, we... Um, highlighted 150 hickory churches so it wasn't just about us Uh, sang the hallelujah chorus that night we had a museum back in the alt house room with jeremiah ingold's buggy in it uh, christmas ornaments big dinner on the lawn huge thing that day We had a history movie that we made, and we we created a history booklet. There was the brush arbor. We had the covenant renewal ceremony in worship that day. We distributed a booklet on the Psalms, 150 days of prayer, sermons on 1 Corinthians. Uh, The Corinth Legacy Capital Campaign was part of this, and that also enabled us not only to get some things done around the church building, but to give mission grants this year to safe harbor and habitat for humanity. The mayor was here for our anniversary and made a proclamation. We had an exhibit down at the art museum earlier in the year. Children had games to play that day. We took a drone picture, scavenger hunt, cookbooks and what else, right? So turn to your neighbor, introduce yourself to somebody you don't know and then share what is your highlight from 2019 in our anniversary. So I found myself wondering who wrote Psalm 150 and for what occasion? Uh was it about a big anniversary or celebration when people came together? Like is that the time that we certainly gather to praise the Lord? And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised at all if there was some big occasion that prompted the writing of Psalm 150. Just praise the Lord. But maybe one of the reasons we're not told when and who wrote it is simply because a psalm like this can't be situational, right? It shouldn't be limited to times sort of when we feel like it. There's a praise the Lord element of this psalm that that really is part of our lives whenever, however. And there's a reason that whoever put the psalms together, and we don't know who did that either, put this one at the very end. So the Psalms have been taking us on an emotional roller coaster up and down and reminding us that it's perfectly fine to to say out loud to God, to put into words whatever you're feeling about the moment. And there are certainly a lot of Psalms that are Psalms of lament. And there are Psalms of of anger and frustration. There are Psalms of deep sadness and grief and hopelessness. But the Psalms end on this note um, intentionally that we would remember that at the end of all that there's still God. And at the end of all of whatever's happening in our lives, there's reason to praise Him. So the psalm begins and ends with one word in Hebrew. So in your English Bible, more than likely that one word is translated praise the Lord. But it is perhaps the most familiar word in any language, hallelujah. Now here's something, if I knew, I forgot, which is not unusual at my age. But did you know that the word hallelujah never appears in the Old Testament of the New International Version or the New Living Translation. So those are the two most common words. that. We, so this is a Hebrew word, hallelujah, and in your translation, more than likely, it never appears in your English Bible. In the New, uh, let's see, which one was it? In the New International Version, it occurs once in the New Testament, and that's in Revelation chapter 19. That grand scene where it says they all gather together and they say hallelujah. So let's talk about the word hallelujah for just a moment. The word hallelujah has three parts in Hebrew. Let's start from the back. Yah is just the shortened word or shortened form of Yahweh, so it's the name of God. The middle part, the loo, is actually the second personal pronoun. So we all know how to correctly say that in southern, y'all. All All right? So the the y'all is the middle part of it. The Lord's name is the end of it. And the first part is the Hebrew word halal. And so to halal is uh, often used of praise, but it's also used negatively. Sometimes it's used in the Bible and outside the Bible of boasting or bragging. So whichever team you were pulling for in either one of those semifinal games yesterday, you know, certainly the quarterback for LSU has a lot of reasons to halal, to boast or brag. That's the idea. Or when a player either points to himself or points up or whatever, like that's a halal word. But the the root idea of the word halal is to shine. So to put a spotlight on someone or something. So if we put those three parts together, shine, y'all, Yahweh, then basically the meaning of the word hallelujah is let God shine, y'all. So whatever's happening, let God shine, y'all, all of you, let God shine. That's the idea behind this word hallelujah. And there are about 15 hallelujah psalms in the book of Psalms, some of which begin with the word hallelujah, some of which end with the word hallelujah, and the one that we're looking at today is one that begins and ends with hallelujah. So the most obvious way to outline Psalm 150 is the best way as well, because it's kind of evident when you read it with any sort of careful attention. The, word, uh, the, the, the psalm answers four questions about your praise, your hallelujahs, where, why, how, and who. So we're going to look through those for just a moment here. First of all, where, in verse 1, where do you hallelujah? And there are two answers, praise God in his sanctuary and second, in his mighty heavens. So from a Jewish perspective, the sanctuary is the temple in Jerusalem. And so the idea here is there's a physical place with a prescribed kind of worship and a a prescribed time of worship. And it was the gathered people of God when they enter into formal worship, praise God in his sanctuary, we would say, praise God when you come to church. And then there's that second part, where do you praise God in his mighty heavens? The word that's used for heavens here is, this form of it is only used four times, once here in Psalm 150 and the other three all in Genesis chapter 1. So this is a word that in older translations is translated firmament. And it means the space between us and whatever is out there. So for the ancients, there was kind of a dome or whatever. And the firmament is between us and them. It certainly was a place of, uh, we don't know what's there and how it all works. For us, we know a whole lot more about it through our modern methods. But it's still very unfathomable to us. And that's why it's mighty, right? The mighty heavens, the heavens... space itself represents the glory and the power of God. Uh, I don't know how many of you either saw in person or saw pictures of the incredible sunset on Friday night. I saw them all over Facebook. This is maybe what the psalmist has in mind when he's imagining what what are the heavens like? So wherever I am when I'm in a designated place of worship, I'm to let God shine, y'all. And whenever I see the heavens and all of the works of God's hands I'm to let God shine y'all this is what I do wherever I am let God shine y'all and then we go to verse 2 which answers the question why and again there are two answers in verse 2 for his acts of power and for his surpassing greatness so the Hallelujah Psalm sometimes recounts specific ways that God has acted on behalf of Israel Psalms 105 and 106 are hallelujah psalms and they basically recount the story of Israel. So in the same way that we for our anniversary took this year and we retold the story in video or booklet form, when you retell the story and you say, wow, that had to be a God thing, the fact that we're still here, that the church, capital C, is still here, that's for his acts of power. Look at all that God has done specifically. But then we also uh, praise God for his surpassing greatness. So don't be so focused on your individual story for good or bad or your church or your country or your family that you forget that even apart from anything God does, it's who God is that leads us to praise. So his surpassing greatness is his essential character, uh, his nature, his attributes, even apart from what he does for us. Interestingly enough, these two words, surpassing greatness, depends on your translation, are rather redundant. They can both be translated excellent or excellent. So your excellent excellence or your great greatness. Uh, These words, when you have two words that are back-to-back and one of them is redundant, it's called a pleonasm if you wanted to learn something in church today. That's a pleonasm when you have a redundant word in front of another word. So when you say, for example, there's a free gift... What other kind of gift is there other than a free gift? Or a cold snow. Have you been in a warm snow? So those are pleonasms, and this is a pleonasm that the poet uses to remind us to sort of double the effect of God's excellent greatness, his surpassing excellence. And then we get to verses 3 to 5, which you already had a display of during the children's message today. The psalmist lists a whole series of musical instruments. The trumpet in verse 3 is the shofar, normally used by the priests. It is not a melodic instrument. It's just a loud blast on a horn. You can't play melodies with the shofar. Uh, You'd use the shofar to call worshipers to attention or soldiers into battle. And then the harp and lyre are more musical, and they were used by the Levites in worship. The timbrel was normally played by women, uh, and the priests and Levites would not have been female. So again, by referring to the timbrel and dancing, the psalmist is including both genders in this time of worship. Strings and pipe were for lay people, probably to accompany what the Levites did, and cymbals also used just with that clash. But the bottom line is the distinctions are not that important and the psalmist really wants you to imagine that same cacophony that we heard here with the children. Whatever you can employ, use it. Make it loud, make it strong, make it beautiful, make it something. But let God shine, y'all, with whatever you have that can make noise and praise God. And then finally we get to verse 6, which answers the question, Who? Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So the literal translation is, let all the breath praise the Lord. So who should praise the Lord? If you're breathing, you qualify. If you've had a great year, let God shine, y'all. If you've endured a year from hell, let God shine, y'all. If you have a specific reason, let God shine, y'all. If you have no other reason than the fact that you're still breathing, then let God shine, y'all. Whatever's happening, as long as you have breath, until you are breathless, y'all, let God shine. That's Psalm 150. Pastor Paul? All
1: right, on the whole, like Bob wore a sweater and and I wore a tie, I would just say on on my behalf, have anyone ever wanted to know what a can of biscuits in the grocery store feels like, you touch me anywhere too much and they'd be like, you know, they come right outside. Christmas, this time between Christmas and New Year's, you don't know what day it is. You're full of cheese. It was on my 12th birthday where Grandmother Ellie and I came to a stalemate. On my 12th birthday, instead of getting a birthday present from my Grandmother Ellie, I got a note saying, I didn't get a thank you note from last year if you want a birthday present this year, send me a thank you note. I have never gotten a Christmas present or a birthday present from her since. Cause I was like, nope, (laughs) if that's what it's gonna take, then no, I'm not writing you a thank you note. And I'm literally one out of 12 other grandchildren that the exact same thing happened to. At 12 years old, I don't know too many 12 year old boys that are excited to write their grandmas a thank you note because they sent them 12 $1 bills for their birthday. But I think to myself, and I'm not the only one that thinks this because C.S. Lewis said the same thing. Why all this commanding to praise God? Why all this commanding? What, is God just so, is, is he like my grandmother, like he needs to get the thank you note to feel affirmed? You know, what, what's, what's going on here? Does, does God, why, why can't, you know, why can't, just, is he just so, you know, not secure in himself that he's like, hey, listen, guys, I need to be praised. Come praise me. Or is there some other, is, is it like a pagan thing, kind of like there's this, there's this transaction that, that's going to take place. That's the one that's like my grandmother, you know. If you praise me, then I'll do this for you. Is that what's going on? And I think if you're a cynic or a skeptic, maybe you do, you come to these psalms and you look at them and you go, I don't, I don't understand, why is it there's, there's, you're telling me to praise God, and then everybody else has to do it too. It's like the thing to do, and if I don't do it, I'm not with it. Well, again, if you look at, this is a lot, this is based on what C.S. Lewis says in Reflections on the Psalms when he says about praise. He asked some of these similar questions, and he said, when I was an atheist, I sought some of these same things, and I didn't understand them. And I had these pagan ideas that had come into my idea of what praise and what worship was like. And I thought, well, is this God just so insecure that he needs our praise, or or he has to have it, or you had better do it, or he's going to be angry, or if you do it, you'll get this? And so when we reflect kind of on what praise is, we do come to the place where we have to have this sober moment where Psalm 150 starts and whenever you see praise the Lord or hallelujah, it is in the imperative, which means it's a command. And as we have said through these last few weeks, that we have to be commanded to praise God tells us one obvious thing, which is that we're sinful. We're sinful that we have to be told to praise God. But God also has gifted us in a way to praise Him that He has gifted no other thing in this world. And so as we talked last week about the rivers clapping their hands and the hills praising the Lord and the oceans roaring as they praise God, this week we turn our attention and it is simply just talking about people. And it's talking about people coming to praise God. And so first let's just talk about this praising God on a very practical note. On a very practical note, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church and my dad embodied this scripture my dad embodied the scripture and my dad has got an incredible tenor voice and he loved Fanny Crosby and all those kind of people so when we got to those hymns not that my dad didn't sing you know the other ones loudly but I looked around at everyone else's dads who I wish were my dads and they sat there and their mom sang the song but their dad dutifully stood there and held the hymnal did not sing and kind of looked at you and said you better sing but I'm not going to sing and I was like, man, I wish my dad was like that, because my dad was like, I love to tell the story. And I mean, like little old ladies were looking at him, oh, I love to hear him sing, and I'm going to. But what my dad was communicating, not by telling me the doctrine behind it, he was communicating the doctrine of praise behind Psalm 150. And so when we see all these different instruments that are commanded to praise the Lord, the last one simply says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And I would tell you that you and I again are the most privileged beings on the planet and that God has given you the most unique instrument ever. When we say the drum, when we say the harp, when we say the guitar, when we say the bass, the piano, the organ, have you ever thought that the human voice can mimic every single one of these? And yet the trombone cannot mimic the guitar. The bass cannot mimic the flute. Do you get it? And the more that my daughter is in this, you know, a cappella group in college and they make every noise with their mouths, I become even more impressed with the instrument that God has given you. And so if you are one who is prone to stand and sit there and not sing, I would just simply give you this frame of reference. On this keyboard, there are over 66 keys, I think, because it's, it's, it's bigger than a grand, right? It's, it's a concert grand, 88, 88 keys. And that means that there are 8 plus octaves on that, 11 octaves. And so, for you not to sing means that you have basically, let's say that you are an A and your wife is an A sharp in terms of the key you are that God has given you. You know, I'm not going to sing. Well, if the conductor wants an A, don't just say, well, the A-sharp's just as good. Have you ever played a song with someone that can't tell the difference between an A and an A-sharp? Sounds great. You are part of his orchestra, and you've been given the greatest gift, and I don't care if it's in tune with the rest of them. It's still way far more advanced than any instrument that we have. So remember that he's the conductor, not you. Which brings me into my first point. Why is it? Why is it then that God commands us to praise? I mean, he's got all these other people to praise. He's got the mountains to praise. He's got the sea to praise. Why? Does he somehow need us? Did somehow? Are we, is there a transaction that's going to take place? And the first reason why we praise God is just simply because it's right. It's the right thing. And God commands us to do it because it's the right thing. And so let me give you the example of why it's the right thing. Why it's the right thing. When you see men a perfect T-shot, straight as an arrow, avoiding all the bunkers, what do you do? Do you stand there with your hands in your pockets? No. You pull out these two fingers and this hand. Right, right. But why? It would be, it just wouldn't be right to stand there and not do anything. Women, when you see that bride walk out, especially if it's your daughter, if it's in a family, and they walk out. Do you just stand there and kind of go, you can't hold it in. You, you literally, you can't help yourself. Oh, how beautiful, how wonderful. Why? It wouldn't be right to hold it in. It wouldn't be right not to express praise, not to express glory. So, to hold it in simply wouldn 't be right, and we know this instinctively. This is why we talk about this idea that we were created to worship. It happens in so many other places we 're created to worship to not do it when we come into god 's presence is to simply not do what is right. The second reason is when we praise what is right, we double our enjoyment when we praise what is right, we double our enjoyment so again, men when we see when we see the you know, Steph Curry lines up outside, and the, he pump fakes once, and the guy goes past him, and then he steps back and drains the three with perfect form, and it goes in to win the game. You don't sit on your hands. You stand and exclaim, yes! Why? It makes the point of what had just happened even better. It doubles our enjoyment of it. And so similarly, whenever we see something beautiful, it doubles our enjoyment of the beauty to exclaim and tell anyone that will listen how beautiful it is. When we're eating something that's wonderful, it doubles our enjoyment when we eat it. And then afterwards go, mmm. It doubles the enjoyment. And this is the whole idea of what heaven is actually going to be like. You notice where we see in Revelation about the wonder of heaven, people don't walk around and think to themselves how great this is that we're with the Lord. People walk around and they see the risen Christ in all his glory and they go, glory be to God. Because it doubles the enjoyment. But finally, even for us, and this is the part where we admit our weaknesses, worshiping focuses us on the Lord. And God reveals His presence to sinful people best in worship. Best in worship. Now, when you think about it, worship is the time. And when you think about your church: where are your chairs directed? Where are the pews directed? Up front. There's there's a central focus. Whether you're looking into a book to read to read the hymn to sing it, or you're looking at a, you're looking at a screen. What again? Your focus is directed, and as your focus is directed you should lose track of yourself and focus on the Lord. But we think to ourselves, but that didn't happen. That didn't happen. It's so hard for me to focus. I come in and I come in with all of these issues. I come in with these burdens. I come in with these sins. I come in with these pains. I come in with my family or my lack of family or my job or my lack of job or my addiction or my sickness. And yet what we need in all of that is God's presence. And so work, worship allows us, when we have a recognition of God, to have a realization of what life is all about. Now, again, to go back to golf, if you've ever tried to perfect your golf swing, they will stick you in this circle, and it's a metal circle. And I don't know if any other men have been in this. My dad played golf at Duke, so I got put through all this kind of mess as a kid. And you've got to get in this metal circle that goes around you, and you have your swing and it causes you to focus everything you're doing on not clang hitting that, that metal ring around you with your club. And the more you focus on it, the more you forget about, you know, your hips or your whatever, and you just begin to focus on going. And all of a sudden, your shot goes straight. Well, in the same way, when we come into worship, we focus on the Lord. And not that our problems go away, but our problems are put into their correct perspective. When I was in Guatemala, the first, second trip that we went to Guatemala, I came down with the Montezumas whatever in the middle of the night, about the third night we were there, and I couldn't move. I was so sick that any movement was going to just bring me over the edge, and all I could do was look at a spot in the ceiling where the water was dripping through and focus on that and just sing songs in my head, and it was the only thing that got me through to daylight. And the the same thing they tried to do to Danielle when we had our baby. They were like, when we had Molly, they were like, just pick a point in the room and focus on it and look at it. And, And she was like, shut up. But when we focus on the Lord, it's not that our problems go away, but they're put into perspective because we see that they're nothing in comparison to the size of our God. And what we need most is recognition of his presence and his power, and that happens in worship. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you for giving us the greatest instruments in the world. Lord, teach us to sing to you with pride in you, with joy in you, that we would not be able to hold our praise in because of how good you are. As the psalmist said, because of the mighty works that you have done. Jesus, come. Stir in us where we have grown cold. Soften us where we have grown hard. Reawaken us, Lord. As David said, restore to us the joy of our salvation and renew our right spirit within us. Lord God, we love you. Teach us to love you more deeply. It's in your awesome name we pray, Lord. Amen.